You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 54 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And as regular listeners will know, I like to start with a shout out to all of our new listeners. And this week we have new listeners in London, Colchester, Ilford, Swansea, Cardiff, Portsmouth, Sheffield, Bournemouth, Bristol, Leeds, Plymouth, Derby, Norwich, Leicester, Newcastle-Pontine, Nottingham, Doncaster, Warwick, Farnborough in Hampshire, Birmingham, Southampton, Guildford, Ipswich and the Isle of Man. So that's all of our new listeners in the UK. We also have new listeners in Leinster in Ireland, in Paris in France, in Malaga, Mercia and Barcelona in Spain, in Lisbon in Portugal, in Luxembourg, in West Flanders and in Haino in Belgium, in Amsterdam, Rotterdam and The Hague in the Netherlands, in Hamburg, Hesse, Berlin, Baden and Dusseldorf, all in Germany, in Copenhagen and Hoverstaden in Denmark, in Uppsala and Stockholm in Sweden, in Hordaland and Akersus in Norway, in Bern and Valais in Switzerland, in Vienna in Austria, in Milan in Italy, in Malta, in Kiev in the Ukraine, in Istanbul and Bursa, both in Turkey, in Maharashtra in India, Manila in the Philippines, Tokyo in Japan, Incheon in South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, the Cayman Islands, Perth and Melbourne in Australia, Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, both in Brazil, Quebec in Canada and then across the pond to our friends in the USA, and this week in the USA, we have new listeners in San Francisco, in Dallas, Boston, Atlanta, St. Paul, San Antonio, Rochester, Los Angeles, New York, Washington, D.C., Buffalo, Cincinnati, Anchorage, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, Seattle, Kalamazoo, Portland, Greensboro, and Salisbury. So, wherever you are in the world, a big welcome to you as a new listener to GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you're going to tune in every week and listen to what we have to say. And, of course, as always, a big shout-out to all my regular listeners. There are well over a thousand of you now who tune in every week to spend 30 minutes with me learning the latest in the world of GDPR. A big welcome to you all. And, as always, if you have any feedback, please do email me at podcasts at insurety.co.uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk. I do read all of your feedback. Uh, I don't have time, unfortunately, to reply to each one individually, but please be sure I do read them all. So if you have any feedback on the show or ideas for things that you'd like us to cover in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, or indeed people you'd like to interview, or maybe you'd like me to interview you on a future edition of the GDPR Weekly Show, then please get in touch with that as well, because we'd love to have interviews on the show. And it's good to bring you, the listener, different voices and different opinions. So in a few moments, I'll be telling you what's coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. So coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have... News that the Royal Bank of Scotland may have kept quiet on a data breach at NatWest. We have news of a data breach for a car insurance company in France and their subsequent fine by the French ICO CNIL. 
We have news of a New Zealand government data breach. We have news of another data breach, this time from MasterCard for their specials loyalty program in Belgium and Germany. We have news of a data breach at the adult sharing site Luscious. And we then have an article looking at the new framework for programmatic advertising and how to ensure that's GDPR compliant with the new framework issued by IAB Europe. We then have an article on how using the Facebook like button may make you a joint data controller with Facebook for data that's shared with Facebook via the like button. So if you have a like button on your website, I very much recommend that you listen to that part of the broadcast. And then finally this week, we say ciao to Giovanni Buttarelli, one of the forefathers of GDPR across Europe. So, as always, a mixed bag of articles. I hope there's something there for everyone and you find the articles useful and informative and you find the programs as a whole entertaining. And as always, if you have any feedback, please do email me at podcasts at insurity.co.uk. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The Royal Bank of Scotland is currently being investigated by the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, over a report that highly sensitive personal data, including the banking details of more than 1,600 customers of NatWest Bank, part of the RBS Group, has been left in the employee's home for more than 10 years because the bank has been unable to reach an agreement on the safe return of the information. Royal Bank of Scotland has not alerted any of the customers involved to the serious data breach because it says it does not know exactly what information its former worker holds. However, anonymous examples seen by the Times newspaper suggest that information includes account and assault codes, credit card details, and people's account histories, including direct debits, as well as their names, addresses, relationships, status, occupation, and phone numbers. Now, if we take a pragmatic view of this for a minute, we can say, well, the data's 10 years old, so a lot of that data probably is going to have changed anyway, and things like credit cards, for example, would have expired. However, the more serious thing, I think, is that there appears to be an attempt by Royal Bank of Scotland to keep this whole issue quiet and not report it to the ICO at any time. And it would appear unlikely that Royal Bank of Scotland have not known about this for 10 years. And so therefore, this breach is likely to fall under the old Data Protection Act 1998. Although the ICO may take the view that it's been reported since GDPR came into force and therefore GDPR will be the relevant condition applied. And obviously that could mean a very big fine for RBS. It's a very much a breaking story, so we will bring you an update to this story in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The French ICO CNIL, which has built itself something of a reputation for fining heavily under GDPR, has fined Active Assurances, a car insurance company in France, €180,000 for failing to adequately protect the personal data of users of the Active Assurances website. 
It's notable that the fine is not as significant as the fine of last June on a estate agent, but in fairness, the failures in this case were not so serious. Senior's investigation followed a complaint from a customer who was able to access the personal data of other customers from his account. The data that could be accessed included copies of drivers' driving licenses, car documentation and bank identification details. When Senior did more investigation, they found that the data was accessible directly by typing the names of customers into a search engine or by adding numbers in the URL address of the website. Senior ordered the company to remediate the situation. In fairness to Active Assurances, they did act very quickly and within a few days they notified Senior that the problem had been fixed. When Senior carried out an inspection a few days later, it noted that the measures taken were insufficient to prevent the referencing of the personal data. The login passwords were not sufficiently secure as they were just relying on date of birth and they were indicated in the login forms what was expected and were also sent by email in clear text and that the company should have ensured that each person accessing the documents was duly empowered. Because of this, Senior imposed a fine for non-compliance with the obligation to preserve the security of the personal data of website users and found active assurances to be in breach of Article 32 of the GDPR. Senior took into account the criteria set forth by Article 83 of the GDPR, the type of personal data and the documents publicly available and the number of persons affected, as well as the company's responsiveness to correct the lack of security and its cooperation with Senior when Senior determined the amount of the fine. So it just goes to show that actually if you do respond when the ICO contacts you regarding the data breach and you take action, then it would be hoped, and I'm sure from my knowledge of them I think they would, that the UK ICO would follow Senior's example and seek to limit the amount of the financial penalty if it finds that real action has been taken by you within a reasonable time scale of having been contacted by the ICO or indeed by a customer reporting a data breach to you. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host Keith Budden. We travel to the far side of the world for our next story this week. The mother of a teenager affected by a major government digital privacy breach in New Zealand says she's alarmed at the ease with which her son's information was shared online. The New Zealand Ministry for Culture and Heritage revealed last Sunday that more than 300 people had had their personal documents compromised following a coding error on a ministry commissioned website. For the 300 people, there were in total some 370 documents, which belonged to people who had applied to be part of the Chua 250 sailings around the New Zealand coast, part of the commemorations marking the 250th anniversary of the first onshore meetings between the native Maori people of New Zealand and Europeans. The leaked documents included 228 passports, 55 driver's licenses and 36 birth certificates, as well as other information such as school IDs and residential visas. Ministry Chief Executive Bernadette Cavanna said at a press conference in Wellington on Sunday that the information had been publicly available since June on a website specifically created for the Tua 250 event, but the breach was only discovered this Thursday. The breach was discovered by a parent of one of the applicants reporting that a fraud attempt had been undertaken using one of the obtained driver's licenses 
This incident has been referred to the police and is currently under investigation. Another parent, Liz McKay, said she received a call from a ministry official at 8 o'clock in the evening on Saturday to say her 16-year-old son's privacy had been breached. She was advised that her son's passport details had been leaked, but was unable to obtain any further information. Liz McKay said, I've no idea if it was just passport details or medical and personal information that was leaked, and who has it. I have concerns about identity theft. McKay said it was unusual to receive a call from a government agency on a Saturday evening, and she was stunned that she was only asked for her email address as proof of her own identity. I just thought government processes were much better in terms of security, especially in this day and age, she said. For the agency, Cavana said the mistake was the result of a coding error and that she had ordered an independent review into what went wrong. It's very disappointing that we didn't know and this was a mistake and I just apologise sincerely, she said. The website was created by a company commissioned by the ministry but was not a ministry website. Cavana declined to name the company but said it had not been involved as far as she knew with any other government agencies. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who is also Minister for Arts, Culture and Heritage, said she had been made aware of the breach involving personal information provided to the Ministry as part of the application process for trainee births in the Voyage Programme. She said this is very disappointing and Manitou Chongda, the Ministry, will be commissioning an external review to determine how this occurred. National's Arts, Culture and Heritage spokeswoman Nikki Wagner said Arden must take responsibility and act decisively in the wake of the unacceptable data breach. It's not good enough that 302 people have had their private details exposed online by a so-called coding error. The public expects better from security systems overseen by the government, and rightly so. The New Zealand government had to concede that the breach was not a good look following a previous data breach of government budget documents back in May this year. The Ministry said they've spoken to more than 200 of the affected people by Sunday morning, with messages and emails left for the remainder. Cavana said the leaked information had been removed from the website on Thursday, and the 250 event page had been taken down on Friday. So whilst obviously GDPR does not apply in this case, because New Zealand is outside of the GDPR regime, it does perhaps illustrate that data breaches do occur right around the world, and it's a reason I think that more and more countries around the world are adopting GDPR or a lookalike to GDPR as their data standard and it's good to see that standardisation happening around the globe and hopefully we're not that far away from it becoming the common standard and therefore everyone will be working to the same standard of data security which I think will make life easier not just for the public but also for those of us who are professionals working in the field. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. MasterCard reported itself to the German and Belgian ICOs this week for a data breach involving customer data from the company's Priceless Specials loyalty program. MasterCard reported that the data had been made available on the internet with customers' names, payment card numbers, email addresses, home addresses, phone numbers, gender and dates of birth being included in the leaked info. MasterCard said that the incident is limited to the specials program and that the only payment card information leaked were the numbers of payment cards. After the data leak was discovered, 
Mastercard suspended the German price of specials and took down the website, leaving up only a message saying that this issue has no connection to Mastercard's payment network. For Mastercard, a spokesman said, We take the privacy and security very seriously and therefore do our utmost to investigate and resolve the issues that's related to the operator of the specials platform in Germany. This includes the information and support of the cardholder concerned. Amongst other things, we have immediately suspended the specials programme once we became aware of the incident. David Stevens, chairman of the Belgian ICO, said, We have received a lot of questions and complaints since the announcement of this incident. We want to reassure users we have contacted MasterCard in order to get additional information and are following this case closely together with the Hessian Data Protection Authority and all the other possible concerned authorities. The breach was discovered after the loyalty program data was released on the internet on August the 19th, according to MasterCard. Therefore, we acted promptly to remove the published personal information and protect the interests of the affected users, the company went on to say. On August 21st, we became aware that a second file of personal information was also published on the internet. We are working to remove that as well. It has been reported that the data was in the form of two Excel spreadsheets containing lists of roughly 90,000 and 84,000 rows, respectively, that were distributed on the internet after MasterCard's Price of Specials Loyalty Program had been breached. According to MasterCard, account passwords and card info, such as the CVC number on the back of the card and the expiry date, of the cards had not been published. They said, based on the facts known at this time, the following personal information is affected. Payment card number, title, name, date of birth, gender, mailing address, email address and telephone number and time of first registration with the Pricer Specials Loyalty Scheme. Neither access data to Pricer Specials nor the passwords were published. The expiration date of payment cards and the check digit the CVC number on the back of the card were also not published. MasterCard said it had started an investigation immediately after learning of the data leak and requested all sites where the info was hosted to also delete the personal information belonging to the price of specials customers. The company is actively monitoring whether the personal info of its clients is posted on other internet servers and will immediately remove it if it finds any such data. A spokesman said we are working closely with the relevant authorities to investigate this incident and that we are currently reviewing our security safeguards to protect this information to identify appropriate improvements to protect against similar incidents in the future. All potentially impacted clients have been informed about their info being leaked in the incident, MasterCard confirmed to the Belgian ICO. The company also added that it was offering free credit monitoring and identity theft prevention to affected users. A spokesman said, we offer all potentially affected users a one-year free credit monitoring and identity theft prevention service, even if the data had not been specifically affected by the incident. As always, we encourage cardholders to review their monthly statements and inform us at once if there are any charges that they are unaware of or that make them suspicious. There was an update to this a couple of days ago. Julianne Smits-Engels, MasterCard's Head of Communications for Germany and Switzerland, said, we can confirm there was an event involving the special loyalty program in Germany managed by a third-party vendor which resulted in the unauthorised distribution of certain information. We take privacy and security extremely seriously and are taking every possible step to investigate and resolve the issue. This includes informing and supporting those cardholders affected and immediately suspending the specials platform, among other actions. 
This issue has no connection to MasterCard's payment transaction network. So we'll let you know in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show if we hear any more from MasterCard or indeed from the German or Belgian ICOs in relation to this breach relating to the MasterCard Specials loyalty platform. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Users of the adult content sharing website Luscious saw their personal information tied to their real identity leaked and exposed following the data breach on the Luscious website this week, which it's thought has exposed the private information of almost 1.2 million site users. The leaked information includes usernames, personal email accounts, locations, gender, activity logs, and in some cases their full names. The breach was discovered last week and we understand from Luscious that a patch was applied on Monday which should have closed the leak. It is estimated that around 20% of the accounts on Luscious use fake email addresses but nonetheless this means that there are some 800,000 genuine accounts and actively used emails which were breached. It's been noted that many of the users who joined Luscious using their emails were using government email addresses. And evidence of this came from users in Brazil, Italy, Australia and Malaya. This adds a great deal of additional vulnerability, not just to the users, but also their employers. Because of course it opens the potential for a bribery. Because with access to employee email addresses within government agencies, criminals can target those individuals, of course, and try and extract money from them in return for not releasing the information. Users affected mainly resided in France, Germany, Russia, Brazil, Italy, Canada and Poland and leaked activity included uploaded videos, user IDs, followers, accounts followed and blog posts. Now the blog posts on this site are quite emotionally charged and so there's obviously a big danger in that information now being out in the public domain and those who uploaded images to the site were also indexed, including details of who created them. The data breach obviously has the potential to be serious or even ruin affected users' personal lives and relationships. Access to the breached information gives hackers the opportunity to exploit users in things like sextortion scams or just to expose them online for being members of and possibly posters too the site and just do it for embarrassment rather than any financial reward. In addition to the sextortion scams, which are likely, by revealing personal details like email address and location, the luscious data breach helps criminals target users for future exploitation, fraud or theft. For their part, luscious say they've now fixed the data breach, but they obviously they are aware that others may now have this data and so they are advising users to change their login details immediately, including their usernames and email addresses. They've also advised, perhaps a bit belatedly, that users should make sure their usernames are completely unrelated to their real names and not to use their work email addresses for subscribing to the Luscious platform. If we hear any more on this from Luscious or from the ICO, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. 
way back, probably 20 episodes ago now, we mentioned about IAB Europe releasing their Transparency and Consent Framework, a guide to help digital advertisers comply with GDPR. At the time, the framework got some fairly negative feedback from the ICOs across Europe. And so IAB Europe and the IAB Tech Lab went away and reworked the Transparency and Consent Framework, and they've now come back and released the second iteration of the framework for digital advertisers. A steering group of 10 national IAB chapters and 55 companies have drafted the current version of the policy. Over the last 12 months, IAB Europe and the Tech Lab have especially sought feedback from publishers and regulators. The goal of the updated document is to provide consumers with more transparency and further enable GDPR compliant programmatic advertising. TCF2 has three specific updates. An increase of purposes, reasons for which publishers and vendors can process personal data from 5 to 10, plus two special purposes to give publishers more flexibility. A more complete accommodation of the legitimate interest legal basis for processing personal data to include whether a vendor has disclosed its legitimate interest and of a user's right to object, and more publisher controls over the purposes for which individual publishers manage personal data. Vendors can now also use the same purpose on multiple legal bases, and publishers can then say which legal argument they prefer to work under in order to more easily operate in whichever the EU's 28 different markets, and of course now the UK as well, that they choose to. The trade bodies are rolling out an updated version of the compliance standard after IAB Europe ran a study finding that 86% of European brands are using in-house programmatic advertising despite the current constraints imposed by GDPR. Google, which as remember has already been slapped with a 50 million euro fine over GDPR violations, said it would provide details on its integration approach of the new framework in the coming week. Chet Nabindra, the Senior Product Manager for User Trust, Privacy and Transparency at Google, said we welcome the announcement of the final terms of TCF 2.0. She went on to say that Google has collaborated with the IAB Europe and its members throughout this process. In line with IAB Europe timeline, we expect to integrate with TCF 2 shortly after the switch over from TCF 1.1 and when 2 goes fully live, which we currently understand to be by the end of quarter 1 2020. For IAB Europe, Townsend Feehan, their chief executive, said the original framework was launched to help a complex industry value chain manage their obligations under new regulations, particularly the GDPR. With the number of constituents involved and disparate regulatory interpretations across multiple jurisdictions, it was essential that the evolution of the framework was handled sensitively with the final specifications able to be better adopted in a manner consistent with differing business models in a wide range of operational markets. She went on to say, while the framework will continue to evolve to meet the needs of our dynamic industry, I am confident that this update addresses all the feedback we have received from the many data protection authorities throughout Europe, as well as the needs of each part of the digital advertising value chain. We've not yet had an opportunity to fully review the framework ourselves, but we will do that, of course, and we will bring you our comments on it in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
regular listeners to the GDPR Weekly Show will know that there have been a number of issues with Facebook uh, since GDPR came into being. And one of those, which we covered several months ago now, was about the use of the Facebook Like button on a website and the danger that posed to the company who or organization who owned the website well things have moved on a little now on that and we've got some more guidance but to give a bit of background on the 29th of july the court of justice of the european union cga eu issued a judgment stating that website operators who incorporate a third-party plugin on their sites can be joint controllers in the collection and sharing of personal data with that third party. This effectively makes the website operator jointly responsible for this collection and sharing of data, despite the fact that the website operator may have no access to the personal data that is being transmitted. Although this case was originally brought under pre-GDPR data protection law, the same principles have been held to still be relevant under GDPR. The test case has been involving a German online trading retailer called Fashion ID, which had embedded the Facebook like button on the Fashion ID website. As a result, when users browsed the Fashion ID website, their IP addresses and certain other basic data were collected and shared with Facebook automatically. And it should be noted that this sharing happened regardless of whether the individual concerned had a Facebook account or not. So why does this matter? Well, in embedding the like button, the court decided that Fashion ID was exerting a decisive influence over the plugin, because the transfer to Facebook could not have occurred without Fashion ID putting the like button on their website. The argument runs that both parties were pursuing a common purpose of commercial gain by agreeing to embed the social plugin on the Fashion ID website. Fashion ID itself did not have access to the data shared with Facebook, but this did not dissuade the court from making a finding of joint controllers. This perhaps indicates that common purpose and objectives are more important in finding joint controllership than access and use of the data by both parties. It is this point which has been most alarming to website operators as it has the potential to greatly expand the risk exposure of any website operator who puts a third-party button on their, or third-party plugin for that matter, on their website. The court found that Fashion ID would have been responsible for both having a lawful basis for sharing the data and for informing website visitors about the disclosure of their information. As this was a CJEU decision, the court was not concerned with whether their legal basis was actually obtained or whether individuals were actually correctly informed because those are matters for a national court to decide. The court did moderate its findings of joint controllership by making it clear that Fashion ID was only a joint controller in respect to the collection and transmission of the personal data and it was not seen as being a controller in respect of Facebook's further use of that data. To some degree, this helps to ease fears over the extent of the judgment. So, just to clarify for GDPR, what is a joint controller? A joint controller is any entity that jointly uses the same set of personal data for the same objective and for the same purpose as another entity. Under GDPR, each joint controller can be responsible for the entire damage caused by a processing activity unless it can prove it is not in any way responsible for the event giving rise to the damage. 
A finding of joint controllership therefore potentially increases an entity's risk exposure for another entity's data processing activity. And that's very important. Lots of people in terms of GDPR tend to think that you can only either be a data controller or a data processor or a sub-processor. But in fact, you might be obviously a joint data controller or even a joint data processor or even a joint sub-processor. So the, the, the matrix is much more complex than perhaps people originally think that it is. Although, of course, to clarify that, in the majority of cases, it is a straightforward case of data controller, data processor. But this judgment goes to show that you can also be found to be a joint data controller with all the legal implications of that as in mind. So what would we recommend that you do? Well, if you're using the Facebook plugin on your website, the like button or something similar, and indeed something like the share on Twitter button, it would, would fall under the same uh, maxim, then make sure you review your privacy notice to ensure that you're providing adequate disclosure of what data you're sharing via the plugin and who you're sharing it with. And the fact that the court has now established that there is a joint controller arrangement between you and the third party. Obviously ensure that you have a valid legal basis for processing the data in the first place. And review measures proposed by the third party in response to this judgment for a GDPR compliant joint controller arrangement. This all falls under Article 26 of the GDPR, which obliges controllers that qualify as joint controllers to have an arrangement in place in respect to their relationship and to make the essence of this available to relevant data subjects. Unfortunately, what is still missing right now are clear and unambiguous criteria for assessing all the situations in which a joint controller relationship may exist. And that's something perhaps we'll cover more in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Or if you feel that this applies to you right now, then of course please do get in touch with us via our email at podcast.insurity.co.uk and we'd be delighted to help you individually with satisfying whether you are a joint controller, whether it is a wise idea to have a Facebook like or Twitter share button on your website and what documentation you need in place as part of your privacy policy to ensure now that you are still legally compliant in doing that. So you don't leave yourself open to a future potentially expensive legal challenge. So if you you think we can help you with that, if it's a situation that concerns you, then please do get in touch with us as I say just drop us an email to podcasts at insurety ensurety.co.uk and we'll be delighted one and our specialists to help you. You're listening to the GDPR weekly show with your host Keith Budden. The European Data Protection Community was shocked this week to learn of the sad death of Giovanni Battarelli. Giovanni Battarelli was 62 and the European Data Protection Office issued a statement which said it is with the deepest regret that we announced the loss of Giovanni Battarelli, the European Data Protection Supervisor. Giovanni passed away surrounded by his family in Italy last night, the 20th of August, 2019. We are all profoundly saddened by this tragic loss of such a kind and brilliant individual. 
Throughout his life, Giovanni dedicated himself completely to his family, to the service of the judiciary and the European Union and its values. His passion and intelligence will ensure an enduring and unique legacy for the institution of the EDPS and for all people whose lives were touched by him. Bottarelli had originally been a judge in Italy for a number of years and then joined the European Commission, having been Secretary-General of Italy's ICO. In an interview with TechCrunch last year, he warned that laws alone won't stop data being used to discriminate unfairly, while asserting that online discrimination is not the kind of democracy that we deserve. I think all of us who work in the data privacy community owe a great deal to Giovanni Buttarelli, and without him, I think it's fair to say that GDPR probably would never have been shaped into the final really good practical shape that it is and he's been working with various people across the EU on GDPR since December 2014 and I think it's really important that we recognise the great impact that Giovanni Buttarelli had on that process and our thoughts and prayers are with his family and his friends and colleagues at this time. Ciao, Giovanni. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember, keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.